Hi, I'm, I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Monetary Studies at the Cato Institute. It's a pleasure to welcome you here today. Uh, weather's not bad. I'm from Buffalo, New York, so it's not a big deal. Uh, and my two brothers were flying in from Buffalo. I don't know whether they're here or not yet, uh, including my identical twin brother, so don't let him take credit for anything today. Uh, I'd also like to thank the Durrell Foundation. Uh, They've been longtime sponsors, as Peter mentioned in his opening remarks. And uh, I'd like to thank all the speakers and also my colleagues in the Center for uh, Monetary and Financial Alternatives and the excellent conference staff uh, at, at Cato. Uh, it takes a lot of work to get these uh, events planned uh, well in advance. Well, this panel is going to deal with unconventional monetary policy, interest rates, and asset prices. And one component of unconventional monetary policy that George pointed out was, of course, interest on excess reserves. We're going to spend less time on that in this panel and look more at uh, quantitative easing and ultra-low interest rates. And I'd like to welcome our three eminent scholars who have contributed to monetary policy research over a long period of time. Uh, Tobias Adrian joins us. He's the financial counselor and director of the Monetary and Capital Markets Department at the International Monetary Fund. And he told me he took Uber over here, so that's good. Uh, Vincent Reinhardt, chief economist and macro strategist at Standish, which is a brand of the Bank of New York uh, Mellon Asset Management, North America. And uh, he's published in the Cato Journal before with his wife, Carmen, who spoke at our conference uh, several years ago. Uh, finally, Lawrence H. White, a professor of economics at George Mason University. And Larry's been a longtime speaker at the Cato Monetary Conference. Uh, he was here for our first event way back in uh, 1982, 36 years ago. So it's a pleasure to welcome Larry back again. The Federal Reserve's unconventional monetary policy featuring large-scale asset purchases known as quantitative easing and forward guidance were designed to lower longer-term interest rates, increase risk-taking, push up asset prices, and fuel spending via a wealth effect. In the process, the Fed engaged in financial repression, keeping real interest rates negative and distorted the allocation of capital. Savers lost billions of dollars in interest income, but stocks soared. However, markets ultimately rule, and when interest rates returned in more normal levels, the wealth effect from QE and ultra-low interest rates may vanish. The key questions, in my mind, are the following. Did unconventional monetary policy create a permanent wealth effect or only a pseudo-wealth effect? How important was monetary policy in keeping rates near zero compared to other factors? Why did the Fed let credit policy dominate pure monetary policy? And finally, why did the Fed engage in what I've called schizophrenic monetary policy? That is, as George pointed out, they wanted to increase the monetary base and increase dramatically but yet, it didn't show up in the normal transmission mechanism of lending and increased uh, money supply and nominal incomes. And that's 
probably in large part due to the interest on excess reserves, which sterilized a lot of these flows. So these are some of the questions that we'll consider today. And uh, we'll get started right away, and each, each panelist will speak for about 15 minutes, and then we'll go right into Q&A. So let's get started. All right, thanks so much for having me here. So I brought a couple of slides that are, you know, giving a bit of context for the panel. And I hope that uh, the other panelists are going to find this useful as well. So these are slides that are based on the most recent Global Financial Stability Report, which we published in, in October. And so I think uh, when you think about monetary policy globally, but in the U.S. in particular today, the left chart here, the chart on the left panel, I think is the most striking and most telling picture of today's monetary policy. So what you see there are... Uh, are different colors for four different tightening cycles in the U.S., 93, 94, 99 to 2000, 2004 to 2006, and 2015 to present. And on the, y, on the x-axis, you have the federal funds rate. So you can see that the monetary tightening cycle is always about tightening, increasing the federal funds rate. And in every tightening cycle, except the most recent one, financial conditions were tightening as well, right? When, you've, when you tighten the federal funds, right, you would expect that financial conditions, so think about credit spreads, equity market valuations, would also get tighter. And uh, most recently, we don't see that. As a matter of fact, we have a very pronounced easing of financial conditions that have occurred since the Fed started tightening in December 2015. So there's a little bit of a dichotomy here. So when you, when you go back to speeches of Janet Yellen, Bill Dudley, or the current policymakers, they always point out that, of course, monetary policy is transmitted via broader financial conditions. Because what matters for uh, corporations, for households, are not short-term interest rates per se, but are broad financial conditions. And so the tension at the moment is that even though monetary policy has been tightened in the sense of tightening the short-term interest rate, actually broad financial conditions have eased. And they are very easy by historical standards. And this is what you can see in the in the middle chart, so there yeah. I literally plot the increase in the Fed funds rate, and in green then the financial conditions, and they have eased. And so this is in units of standard deviation. So zero is the long-term run average over the past 20 years. And you can see that you know, at the beginning of this year, uh, financial conditions were something like one and a half standard deviations below the longer term average. They have tightened a little bit this year, so now they're only one standard deviation easy, but they are still easy by historical standards. Um, now, when you look globally, so in emerging markets, of course, this year financial conditions have tightened quite a bit. They were also one and a half standard deviations easy, and they are now around zero. And then in advanced economies outside of the U.S., so primarily Europe, financial conditions also went from one standard deviation easy to basically neutral. And in China, they're sort of like moving sideways. They're a little bit easy, but not all that easy. And so I think the key question going forward, and this is really the core question of the panel, is you know, what is going to happen to risky assets uh, as we are going deeper into 
the monetary tightening cycle. You know? As you know, the 10-year rate has increased to some extent, but term spreads per se, when they decompose the 10-year into an expectations component, so what is the market expecting in terms of the forward part of short-term interest rates versus a risk premium, so the term premium component, the term premium actually remains fairly compressed. Um, so I don't know what happened there. I don't know what happened there. So I can see my slides here, but uh, now the slides have disappeared there. I don't know whether somebody... Okay, so, so that I think, I think is a very, very useful anchor, and I think it's a very important uh, question to address, because, of course... Oh, I see, I'm, I'm stepping on the cable, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, because of course, um, you know, at some point, you would expect that, that financial conditions are going to tighten. And the question is, how is that going to unfold, right? How is it going to unfold? And, you know, the last uh, month or so, uh, we have seen some tightening. So, you know, in particular, the VIX, uh, you know, uh, equity market volatility last year was around 10 and this year is around 20. And 20 is actually the long-term historical average, right? So 10 was extremely low volatility. So we got used to sort of like an environment with very low volatility. And now we are back to an environment that is much more normal by historical standards. And so you can see that stock prices are going up and down. So, you know, in October, they went up, they went down quite a bit. And basically in the U.S., you know, the equity gains were lost completely. Then they went up a little bit. In the past couple of days, they went down. You know, globally, of course, emerging markets have gone down quite a bit. Europe and Japan have also gone down quite a bit. Uh, and, you know, the price-earnings ratio has gone down. Now, what matters, of course, is not stock prices per se or even the price-earnings ratio. What matters is sort of like what is the value relative to fundamentals? So what is sort of like a valuation uh, model? And so the way that we look at that is that well, we don't know. We, there's not one true valuation model, right? I mean, there's no, I don't think anybody can claim to have the one model that is the right model. So what we do, we actually run hundreds of models, right? So we look at the literature, we, we capture all these different equity market valuation models, and then every day we run hundreds of models. And then we look at the distribution of fair value across the models, right? And this is what is plotted on the right, and the left chart is another version of that. So this is basically telling you the level of the S&P 500 at the, at the moment, actually, I'm showing you October 29th just to get out the last two weeks or so. And then I show you the distribution of fair value across hundreds of different models. And so what you can see is that there's quite a bit more downside risk. So different models tell you there's quite a bit more downside risk that is, that is in the distribution, but it's not as bad as it was in early 2018. So... In early 2018, so this is giving you the range across the models and then the median across all the models. So this is sort of like a, a nice fair value notion because it's giving you not the value of one model, but the median across hundreds of models. And so in early 2018, the median was, uh, the actual value, the black line, was way outside. So it was way above the median and it was outside the range of any model, right? Whereas now we are, the actual value is much closer to the median. So there's some valuation pressure that has been taken off. And so, you know, this is sort of like going into the right direction because it means that financial conditions 
are uh, normalizing a little bit. Now, when we look at other markets, so when you look, for example, at the VIX, uh, so this is the VIX curve, so this is the implied volatility curve from you know, one month out to two years into the future, you can see that the market implied vol is still below the model base. So this is like using a gauge model with, with forecast um, volatility, and so you still see a negative thing here. So there isn't a risk premium. So normally you would think, well, there should be a risk premium. So model implied vol should be above forecasted vol. Actually, it's negative everywhere. So there's this huge risk-seeking that you still have in volatility space. I, you know, options are still extremely underpriced, or, or tail risk is very underpriced. And you can also see that in the U.S. corporate bond market, we're sort of like, you know, uh, you know spreads in both high-yield and investment grade remain very, 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 very low uh, by historical standards. Now, uh, you know, another thing, of course, that has been going on in the past uh, two, three weeks is a very sharp readjustment in commodity prices. So the oil price shown on the left here, I show you the spot price in green, and then the five-year forward in, uh, in gray, and so basically the spot was quite a bit above the forward, so there was uh, you know, a fairly steeply uh, inverted uh, curve, which is the normal thing in, in the oil market, and that has, the inversion has totally flattened out now, and so the price went from something like 85 to something like 60, or I think by now it's even below 60. And, you know, what is that? Of course, there are lots of supply factors. I mean, shale oil and, you know, the sanctions were relaxed to some extent. So there are supply factors. But I just want to point out there might also be something going on in terms of demand. So when you look at the global PMI, you know, that was rallying up for many uh, years. And now it, it is coming down. And so as a result, it's not just oil that is, that is going down, it's also broader commodity prices really have, so like, you know, it looks like they've reached a peak as the PMI, global PMI is so like slowing down a little bit. So it might not only be supply, there might also be something on the demand side here. And so my last slide is just looking a little bit deeper into the leveraged loan market. So as I pointed out earlier, so high yield spreads continue to be very, very compressed. They have widened a tiny little bit, but they're very compressed by historical standards. And it's not just that. It's also that, say, in the leveraged loan market, you know, issuance volumes are record highs. They are, you know, uh, above pre-crisis levels. And the leverage in those deals, you know, keeps getting higher. That's true in the U.S. And it's true... In Europe, so more than half of the deals now have more than five times leverage. And of course, the investor base has changed quite a bit. CLOs are the biggest investor base in the, in the leveraged loan market. But, you know, bank loan mutual funds are also very large. Out of something like a little bit over a trillion outstanding, something like 200 billion now are in leveraged loan funds. And, you know, they're not leveraged per se. So the investor here is not leveraged, right, because they're mutual funds. But, of course, there's a massive amount of maturity transformation on the balance sheet because the leveraged loans are particularly... Are potentially quite a liquid, while uh, mutual fund shares are redeemable daily. So, you know, we don't quite know. If there was a sharp adjustment in risky asset prices, we don't quite know what the dynamics would be in that particular sector. 
And so, you know, that I think is, is sort of like setting the stage. So, you know, financial conditions do remain easy. Uh, they have come off the, the very high levels a little bit. So there's a little bit of tightening, but they're still easy by historical standards. We do see some underwriting standards deteriorating. And I think the punchline question is, at one point, is monetary policy going to translate into further sharpening? And what's the scenario? So how is that going to look like? Is that going to be you know, very sharp and very nonlinear, or is it going to be this gradual, you know, thing that everybody always hopes for, but that never seems to be happening? Uh, thank you for this opportunity. Um, Beginning in late 2008, an independent technical agency of the United States government experimented with resources accumulating to about one-fifth of nominal GDP. There was no settled body of research supporting the intervention, but it seemed like a good idea at the time to the leadership of the Federal Reserve. Ten years and three and a half trillion dollars of net asset purchases later, there's still no established answer to what unconventional policies produce or leave as a legacy. The irony of quantitative easing is that its effects are hard to quantify. Prior to 2008, Fed officials lived in a comfortable world delimited to the basis point, or actually to the quarter percentage point, which their policy actions always rounded to. But unconventional policy, which includes adjusting guidance on interest rate intentions and changing the size and composition of the balance sheet, maps uncertainly into interest rate expectations and the preferences of investors. As a bit of a roadmap, I'm going to talk about three things, all of which are included in the paper, which I hope you'll take a look at. First, back in 2004, I wrote a few papers with Ben Bernanke, haven't kept up with what he's doing, uh, framing expectations on the, un on the efficacy of monetary policy. I'm going to revisit those arguments. Second, I'll, do re I'll redo event studies recording the reaction in various asset prices to announcements about the Fed's balance sheet. Now, I know this looks under the lamppost for the lost item, but I'll uh, try to put it in a somewhat different perspective. And third, I'll conclude with the normative issue of the appropriateness of a large and lingering Federal Reserve footprint in markets. Now, the prior time that the Federal Reserve was, had a near brush with the zero lower bound to interest rates was 2003 and 2004. The nominal federal funds rate touched the unprecedented level of, of 1%. And, the, and there was a risk of repeating the ongoing lost decade in Japan of poor economic performance. Among the works done at the time were papers I wrote with Ben Bernanke and Brian Sack. Uh, quantitative easing, also known as large-scale asset purchases, exploits four channels of influence on the economy. Purchases send a signal about the willingness of, of, to keep interest rates low for a long time. Second, assets are purchased through the creation of reserves. And any money multiplier effect may therefore provide stimulus to the economy. Third, if assets are imperfect substitutes, the purchase of some might influence risk premiums. 
And fourth, the willingness of the central bank to purchase government securities might encourage politicians to issue uh, more of it, providing fiscal impetus when an economy is flagging. Uh, the diplomatic term for the collaboration of monetary and fiscal policymakers is creating fiscal space. Uh, the less delicate terms for QE that is never reversed is debt mon monetization or financial repression. In retrospect, only two of those mechanisms got traction because banks did not use the extra reserves and politicians did not use the extra fiscal space in the QE period. Uh, the two that worked had mixed results. Uh, rate guidance had a material effect on rates, but sending a consistent message proved hard, uh, especially in a committee setting where different views are expressed. In fact, for most of the stay at the zero lower bound, starting in 2012, when the Fed was explicit about its rate intentions with the summary of economic projections, the Fed's rate guidance was more hawkish than markets believed. Uh, in addition, expressing the intention to keep the funds rate at zero proved a whole lot easier than giving away that accommodation, expressing the intention of raising rates. Now, large-scale asset prices were associated with declines in yields through some combination of guidance and portfolio balance effects, the magnitude is hard to quantify, and there does seem to be diminishing marginal effectiveness as the programs continued and got bigger and bigger. And on the other side of the ledger, market liquidity suffered as holdings became more and more concentrated in official hands. One of the empirical strategies in my paper is, is, is simple, even simple-minded. Uh, QE represents a natural experiment on how markets work and investors behave. To the extent that the news comes as a surprise, the repricing of long-lived assets reveals investors' beliefs on how the program's gonna work. I look at the market reaction in the weeks around seven FOMC announcements regarding its balance sheet. A weak window is longer than usually done because it allows a little extra time to absorb the market's uh, reaction to QE news at the risk of adding non-QE news. In the event, QE news flattened the Treasury yield curve, consistent with signaling rates that would be lower for longer as the front end of the yield curve was uh, pinned to zero. And perhaps evidence of a portfolio balance effect given the purchases were skewed to the longer end of the yield curve. Uh, in total, the 10-year Treasury yield fell 61 basis points in QE windows. All of that, however, came out of the estimated term premium, at least using the proxy calculated by Tobias and his colleagues at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. Risk spreads mostly stayed unchanged, implying the change in Treasury yields passed on to borrowing costs. Mortgage-backed securities, which were the particular uh, focus of Fed intent, benefited the most. QE announcements, not surprisingly, tended to curb the expected volatility of financial prices and to encourage risk-taking in equity markets. However, if you place those changes in QE windows from the start of the Fed's expansionary efforts to the beginning of balance sheet renormalization, QE mattered, but not that much. It's a small fraction of the net changes in prices over this period. Moreover, what I did was progressively lengthen the window one week at a time. 
starting with the Friday before the announcement and going one, two, three, all the way out to 13 weeks after the announcement. At first, QE still mattered and that yields were, were reliably lower. But by five weeks on, there's no reliable reduction in yields associated with those QE announcements. Put the other way, there are eight FOMC meetings a year. So that means, uh, on average, a QE announcement at one doesn't leave an imprint on rates by the next. Now, central bank actions in the financial crisis and thereafter were designed to reduce the volatility of financial crisis. Sticking like glue to the effective lower bound uh, on the nominal policy rate and offering explicit guidance about future policy kept investor uncertainty to a minimum to uh, about the rate to discount asset values. Large-scale asset purchases placed a floor on the prices of treasury agency and mortgage-backed securities. Flooding the banking system reserves ensured banks had safe collateral on their books. Deep down, this reflects a concern that an outsized deterioration in financial conditions, writ large across many assets, could trigger a more widespread deterioration as, say, perhaps depositors run on suspect institutions that may still be solvent but illiquid, or dump assets in fire sales. The titles of the memoirs of the financial officials who served in 2008-2009 indicate considerable concern about the prospects for such runs or fire sales. The logical sequence is on the brink, stress test, the Courage to Act, respectively the titles of memoirs by Paulson, Geithner, and Bernanke. However, an outsized willingness to tamp down the volatility of financial prices ne neglects three important features of markets and features that matter the longer those policies are in place. First, not all volatility is unhelpful. The risk of capital loss leads investors to be more discriminating in asset choice and over time rewards them, those with more skill, a longer perspective or a greater tolerance for risk. This encourages savings and directs capital to relatively more productive uses. Put the other way, by absorbing risk, the Fed lessened market discipline on in investors and institutions. Moral hazard and its reward to indiscriminate risk-taking and its distortion of capital, uh, uh, ca capital decision-making. Second, not all interventions are equal. Specific price supports shift the mean of expected outcomes, inflating asset prices. Included among the actors influenced are politicians who may in be encouraged to increase spending and cut taxes because there's a little consequence for borrowing costs. Now, to be sure, creating fiscal space may have been a compelling in a recession, but it puts the long-term trajectory of debt on a dangerous trajectory. When low borrowing costs made deficits look attractive in the US in 2017 and 2018, it also creates uh, the incentive for future uh, monetization, what Peter was talking about in the previous program, uh, panel. Third, by becoming a large counterparty in specific markets, liquidity for private sector transactions dries up. Indeed, some intermediation activity may disappear altogether, as George mentioned. 
This was the case with the U.S. interbank market in the mid-1930s and 1940s, which was the last time the Fed uh, tarried at the zero lower bound, which was actually the subject uh, in part of the Cato uh, uh, um, a paper with my wife Carmen. And these problems are even more pronounced in Europe and Japan. Uh, these points to combine to highlight the risk that overstaying market support may impair the efficiency of market mechanisms. And this isn't new, and let's take a different perspective. In Ironies of Automation, uh, Lisanne Bainbridge in 1983 pointed out that people relying on machines may lose core competencies in the skills being automated. Uh, we no longer, in the modern sense, setting remember phone numbers because they're all in our uh, contacts list. Aside from inconvenience and embarrassment, the de degradation of skills may impair the resilience of a system at a time of stress. What are you going to do when the battery of your phone dies? But more importantly, how can we keep pilots sharp enough to react in an emergency if most of their time in the cockpit is watching the autopilot work? In the financial world, how can we expect traders and investors to react reliably to shocks in the future if their past is one, one in which they've been protected by a benevolent central bank? By the way, this feature, by making markets less resilient, makes future official in, in, intervention more likely and self-justifying. If the quantitative contribution of QE is limited, then the balance with its most, mostly uncounted adverse effects needs to be reassessed. An enlarged Fed presence influences market functioning and risk-taking. Central to those effects are the extent to which the Fed absorbs risk that the private sector normally bore and disintermediates private parties in market activity. To sum up, QE mattered, very large-scale asset purchases produced a small net decline in yields, which no doubt was helpful at a time of severe macroeconomic dislocations. The duration of its effect was limited and revealing. That the Fed still has a $4.8 trillion balance sheet shows that policymakers do not have sufficient confidence in market mechanisms or respect the role of risk in directing the efficient allocation of resources. A healthier respect for both would place stricter limits on the extent to which a central bank leans against financial market volatility. The problem is that the precedent lowers the bar for future intervention and leaves the Fed operating under too large an ambit in our market economy. Thank you. Okay, I've got uh, joint work with uh, my former student, Scott Burns, who uh, couldn't be here today because he's at one of those schools where they expect you to teach. Um, I want to thank the previous panel for kind of setting up uh, what I'm going to discuss, which is if uh, unconventional monetary policy seems to be puzzling as a monetary policy strategy, uh, what else might it have been about? How do I advance the slides? 
Mouse. There we go. Thank you. Okay, so uh, just to uh, remind you of what's mostly been already said about the Fed's uh, asset portfolio, it's grown about fivefold. But what uh, Scott and I emphasize in the paper is how the composition has changed. So it went from, as was mentioned, uh, I think by Peter Ireland, uh, from being 88% uh, U.S. government securities. Uh, it's now only 55% treasuries and 40% mortgage-backed securities, and the dollar value of mortgage-backed securities is about $1.7 And the total portfolio, of course, has grown, but it's the composition change that uh, requires an explanation because the portfolio could have grown by the same amount while just buying treasuries. So what was the impetus for buying mortgage-backed securities uh, in particular? So you probably have seen a diagram like this one before showing the timing of, of events. Uh, here you see the amount of treasuries actually declining. That's the sterilization period that uh, George Selgin mentioned, where in order to keep the monetary base uh, from growing as a res uh, in, result, uh, in response to the increase in lending to troubled institutions, uh, the Fed is actually selling off treasuries. But then the portfolio starts growing very quickly as the Fed uh, makes lots of loans to troubled institutions. And then uh, that's sort of the unannounced quantitative easing. Uh, and then QE1 involves a program of purchasing mortgage-backed securities. So you see that growing as a share of the Fed's assets. Now that's 2014. So if we bring it up to the present, where's my arrow? Sorry. Uh, this is from the Fed's current uh, website. Uh, you see 2014 is kind of when it peaked and it was flat for a long time. And now we've just begun since October 2017, a slow roll off of maturing uh, securities, but very slow and very much delayed. Uh, here you see the uh, sterilization, the drop in treasuries, which is then reversed. Uh, and the loan portfolio is what make, drives the first uh, upward cliff, and then that declines pretty quickly. But the mortgage-backed securities remain on the balance sheet. Uh, and quantitative easing, as others have mentioned, was not really a monetary policy. and Others have discussed it with regard to interest rate targets, but if we look at monetary aggregates, uh, thank you. <laughs> you can see that while the monetary base was growing quite uh, in quite unprecedented ways, broader monetary aggregates like M2, which I had to divide by 10 to put on the same scale, continued on a fairly smooth path. So the intention of expanding the monetary base was not to increase money in the hands of the public, which would have been a good idea in 2009 when nominal income was falling. So if it wasn't a monetary policy, if it wasn't aimed to ease monetary conditions, wasn't aimed to put more money in the hands of the public or expand bank loans, which is the other side of banks' balance sheets from customer deposits, what was it about? 
well, let's look at the targeted lending programs and who their beneficiaries were. Uh, so what I'm suggesting is that the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet, first in the form of targeted lending and then in the form of large-scale asset purchases, namely mortgage-backed security purposes, was designed to boost the prices of particular assets relative to other assets rather than to have macroeconomic uh, impact. So here's uh, the first half of the list of uh, preferred credit programs. Uh, the term auction facility, because it was an auction facility and because the depository institutions, the Fed's ordinary clientele, uh, were the beneficiaries, maybe should be excluded, not really being a, a matter of favoritism. But the term securities lending facility was designed to benefit just one segment of the financial market, namely the primary dealers. I'll say more about that in a minute. Likewise, the primary dealer credit facility, the asset-backed commercial paper money market mutual fund liquidity facility, that's the longest of the titles, <laughs> uh, it's clearly designed to benefit money market mutual funds. The commercial paper market got its own intervention. The term asset-backed securities is when the Fed begins to support the prices of mortgage-backed securities. We all know about the sweetheart deal for J.P. Morgan Chase, where the Fed took $30 billion of the worst assets off the balance sheet uh, of, J of uh, Bear Stearns uh, to persuade J.P. Morgan Chase to buy Bear Stearns. There, the beneficiaries are very clear. The, the bondholders and counterparties in Bear Stearns, who otherwise would have taken losses, uh, were protected. Uh, a similar kind of deal was made for AIG. Uh, and there were further credit extensions to particular broker-dealers. Holders of mortgage-backed securities got the securities borrowing facility. Uh, the wholly-owned subsidiary of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Maiden Lane, which was created to acquire the dodgy assets from Bear Stearns, that experiment was replicated in Maiden Lane 2 and 3, which acquired assets from AIG. Uh, we learned only later, because it wasn't announced at the time, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York had special credit lines uh, for Citigroup and Bank of America. Uh, not used, actually, but standing there uh, ready. Holders, uh, bondholders of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Of course, it didn't stop Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac from going into receivership, but they were backstopped uh, briefly. And then there's the whole Operation Twist, or Operation Twist 2, which was the Fed's shifting from short-term treasuries to long-term treasuries in order to try to flatten the yield curve, uh, as we've heard, uh, bring down long-term rates relative to short-term rates in order to bring down 30-year mortgage rates in order to benefit financial institutions that are over-invested in uh, housing finance. Uh, and the mortgage-backed security purchases can be seen in the same light. They're to support the price of mortgage-backed securities, thereby benefiting the financial institutions that are heavily invested in those kind of securities, or like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have issued guarantees on those kind of securities. Uh, to say a little more about the preferential credit to primary dealers, uh, the Fed, like all these special lending programs, 
rationalized it by saying it's under the scope of our powers under Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act. And so the, the authority that the Fed has to lend money to any institution in times of uh, exigent circumstances uh, is enlarged here from uh, to uh, firms that aren't banks, uh, not even investment banks, but are broker-dealers. So they can borrow from the Fed, and if they don't have good collateral, the Fed will swap their bad collateral for the Fed's treasuries so that they will have good collateral. Uh, a lot of the, more, the uh, primary dealers are foreign securities firms, but to name the uh, domestic primary dealers, uh, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo. Uh, the main emphasis, though, is on, on preferential lending to the housing sector. And the Board of Governors rationalized this uh, as the reason, or provided this as the reason for interest on reserves, which we've heard a lot about this morning, uh, and for quantitative easing. So the payment of interest on reserves is to allow the Fed to expand its balance sheet as necessary, uh, quoting the press release, uh, to support financial stability while implementing the monetary policy that's appropriate. So we want to expand our balance sheet without changing the path of M2, is basically what the Fed is saying, without causing inflation. And what is it that we want to do with the funds? We want to finance bailouts, preferential lending, purchases of mortgage-backed securities right, without causing inflation. That's why we're paying interest on reserves to bottle up the funding that we're uh, enabling us to purchase these assets. So the Fed's liabilities, new bank reserves, are not going to leak through to the broader economy. And in rationalizing the mortgage-backed securities purchases, it's explicit that uh, the action is being taken, quote, to reduce the cost and increase the availability of credit for the purchases of houses. So the Fed had this theory uh, that somehow the housing sector is more important than other sectors, but of course, if you're directing credit more to sector A, a bigger share of credit to sector A than a smaller share is going to the rest of the financial sector, or the financial system. And again, Operation Twist 2 is designed to make mortgage, 30-year uh, mortgages cheaper relative to other kinds of financial contracts. So there are beneficiaries to this change in the Fed's portfolio composition. So if you like, this is a kind of public choice approach to explaining what the unconventional monetary policies, so-called monetary policies, were about. They weren't really monetary policies. They were credit policies. Now, a number of uh, critics of these policies have pointed out that really it's a kind of fiscal policy. It's doing what we normally leave to Congress, which is borrowing money and wasting it on bailouts. <laughs> normally, that's the purview of Congress. But here the Fed is doing it. Um, and as others have said this morning, it's a kind of dangerous precedent. There are all kinds of ways the Fed could borrow money from banks by paying interest on reserves and then use the funds uh, to finance whatever. Uh, I remember back in 2015 the, when the government of Puerto Rico was in big trouble, uh, financial trouble, couldn't pay their bonds. They were trying to lobby the Fed and saying, look, uh, you've, on the grounds of systemic importance, you've bailed out housing finance. 
Well, the government of Puerto Rico is systemically important, so how about us? Fortunately, the Fed resisted, but it won't be the last uh, attempt. Others have mentioned the Congress taking some of the Fed's surplus to uh, finance highways. So I think we have to face up to a problem of, of what uh, has been known in the literature as a problem of regulatory capture. That is, of the regulated firms sort of taking control of the policy of the regulator and bending it in their interest. And there's an important report by the Government Accounting Office which talks about this problem, in particular in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So uh, people at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York Capital Markets Group actually went to primary dealers, commercial paper issuers, other institutions like GE Capital and said, how can we help you? So how can we strengthen your bottom line? That sounds like uh, regulatory capture to me. Uh, and there's a kind of governance issue at the New York Fed, which involves uh, their directors being representatives of firms that were recipients of this preferential lending. So General Electric's CEO was a Class B director. J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO, Lehman Brothers' CEO, well, didn't stop Lehman from failing, but they were the recipient of some uh, favorable lending. Uh, and Goldman Sachs. Uh, so there's a problem there. And the sort of insider dealing leads to, um, well, the, these kind of connections lead to Geithner being replaced with a old Goldman Sachs hand because the search committee is headed by a Goldman Sachs uh, person. So what do we do about this? Well, Dodd-Frank actually tries to address this by taking the Class A directors out of the process of appointing the Federal Reserve Bank president. So the Class A directors are those who are commercial bankers uh, elected by the member banks. The member banks also elect Class B directors, and then Class C directors are appointed by the Board of Governors and are supposed to be non-financial market people. I think it's kind of unfortunate to remove banker influence from the FOMC because bankers have a better voting record, frankly, than the political appointees, than the, the governors do. Uh, so I think a better reform would be to just remove the Federal Reserve Banks from credit allocation. Then it doesn't matter. If we just limit them to voting on monetary policy, it doesn't matter uh, if they come from uh, connected to financial institutions. Leave credit allocation policies to Congress. When it comes to the bigger picture of monetary policy, I think uh, these kinds of dubious transactions help bolster the case for, uh, we'll hear about this afternoon, for limiting uh, monetary policy to a, a rules-based approach. So, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Now, we, ha we have about 20 minutes for questions. Um, when you're called upon, uh, please wait until the microphone comes and then uh, state your question to a specific panelist and also uh, please identify yourself. So, yeah, right down here. Uh, Dennis Campbell, independent uh, investment advisor. Um, Mr. Adrian, your average of models seem to 
uh, show a stock market that was considerably less overvalued than most of the models I'm familiar with. I'm just wondering if you incorporated any uh, analysis of current profit margins, which are historically high, and allowed for some normalization thereof. Yeah, so uh, what is driving uh, the so like median value of the equity uh, valuation is that uh, price-earnings ratios are, of course, very high by historical standards, but uh, the interest rates are very low. So when you use low interest rates to discount future cash flows, you come up with an equity risk premium that is, is actually not that stretched. So it's a little bit of a... Um, of a funny, uh, funny thing, and um, so we really see stretched valuations in these other markets. So in in credit markets, in leveraged loans, high yield loans, investment grade, you have extremely tight pricing. In derivatives markets, like the implied volatility that I showed, is very very tight. Uh, while the equity valuations are somewhat stretched. Um, so, you know, they're somewhat stretched, but they're not unbelievably stretched because interest rates are so low. Now, this, of course, goes back to the whole debate of the, of the panel, and I'm happy to, to say something about that. Anybody else want to address that? Okay. Right over here. Uh, Chris Inglis, CPA, um, Fairfax County Adult Education. Uh, Mr. Adrian, along those same lines that Dennis mentioned, um, did you take into consideration the fact that the earnings per share uh, before or after stock buybacks, because the stocks, there a tremendous amount of stock buybacks were financed by the low interest rates. Companies have leveraged themselves up and used that money to uh, buy back their shares, which will inflate the stock earnings per share and the stock price. And that's also an artificial um, you know, valuation. Did you take that into consideration when you were doing your valuation models? Yeah, so let me, let me put that into, into broader context. So we actually put out a, a blog today, this morning, on leveraged lending. And uh, one of the charts uh, in that blog shows that, you know, uh, over half of leveraged loans are actually used for refinancing uh, as opposed to for, for, you know, like more real investment or so. And, you know, some of that might actually go into, into repurchases or so. So there has been so like you know, some trend towards taking on more leverage in order to increase payouts to shareholders. Um, so, you know, in terms of the valuation models, I mean, these are all uh, in terms of uh, the, the exposed returns, so the gross returns to investors. So this is including both uh, the uh, capital gains as well as uh, the dividends that are paid to investors, but it's on a per share basis. How about in the back? Jeff Lacker, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, a political economy question for all three panelists. On December 31st, 2017, the Federal Reserve's portfolio had accumulated $80 billion of unrealized gains. On June 30th of this year, that had swung to negative 20 billion, which is to say that they'd accumulated $20 billion in unrealized losses on their portfolio. Their liabilities are all current, so that's basically um, a fair market value of their portfolio. Uh, capital and surplus amounts to $39 billion on the same date. 
uh, and uh, obviously interest rates have increased since then. Back of the envelope calculations suggest that it uh, wouldn't take much more to swing the Federal Reserve's portfolio into having negative net worth on a fair value basis. In fact, it may have done so already, for all I know. Um, I wonder if uh, panelists would comment on the political economy implications of that uh, occurring and coming to public attention. So why don't we start with Larry, if you have something to say on that? Well, um, most of the people in this room probably didn't know what you just said. <laughs> so it's a little early to judge what the uh, effect will be in uh, Congress, but it's an interesting question. If if we held the Fed to ordinary accounting standards, then they wouldn't be reporting a profit uh, in the coming year, I take it, and wouldn't be remitting $80, million, sorry, $80 billion uh, to the Treasury. Uh, I expect them to continue to remit money to the Treasury. So it'll be interesting to see what rationale they adopt, but of course the Fed has always had its own accounting standards. <laughs> yeah, so I think the answer is thank God for par value accounting, which is why they can do that. And that tells you that the Federal Reserve is never going to sell assets. And to recognize the losses, it's only a matter of running off. So on par value accounting, you don't have to acknowledge the loss. I think it's also the case that you're right to phrase it as a political economy question because in principle, a central bank can have negative capital in a uh, operating fiat currency. Other central banks have done it. Chile paid for the bank recapitalization in the early 80s. Uh, but it's a political problem, and many of the qu questions, the Federal Reserve has been very good about framing issues so that it uh, does not inflame. Uh, uh, politicians, that interest on excess reserves is not a subsidy to banks uh, or and, and the like, and this is just another one of them. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Vince that uh, there have been a number of examples in history around the world where, net, where central banks have operated with negative equity. Uh, that's a very unique feature of central banks, that they can actually operate with negative equity. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, the perception might be quite quite destabilizing at some point because, you know, having an, an institution with a negative equity is 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 perhaps not as confidence instilling. So, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, there 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 might be an issue there. But operationally, per se, it's not an issue. I think it's an issue of perception, and it might be it might be an issue that would have uh, political consequences. Yeah. It also goes back to the keynote uh, address where Claudio was talking about the importance of tra trust in, payment, in, a, in the payment mechanism. Uh, it is not a, an economics issue. It's a political economy issue. What will politicians say? And it's a question about trust in the central bank. If it's a fiat currency, it should be valued by the expected future policies, not by the, the, the capital it holds. It does bring to our attention the, the huge duration gap that the Fed has been running, which draws our attention to their attempt to manipulate the yield curve, which I think is a, a question that Congress ought to ask them about. Yeah, I think right here. And then here next. 
Um, it's a really great panel and great question from um, Jeff Lacker. Um, I wanted to ask a question to Professor White. Maybe Vincent would also have views. Um, the FOMC has formal votes. They announce the decision. Uh, they have detailed minutes. They release all the documents after five years. Um, most of the decisions you were referring to were made by the Board of Governors, um, some of which, like the November 2008 MBS decision, there was no recorded vote, there's no minutes, the, there's no documents to be released later. I'm just wondering, because you're a historian here, um, about the transparency of these Board of Governors decisions relative to FOMC. The other question I want to ask is, Fed officials and former Fed officials have been arguing lately that... Uh, Dodd-Frank took away too much power from the Fed that's going to hamper its ability to act as lender of last resort and that this is going to come back to haunt us in the next crisis. And I'm just wondering if the three of you have views about that. Uh, on your second question, I don't think so. Uh, Dodd-Frank said that there can't be specific bailouts of particular institutions. It has to be part of a broad-based lending program. But it never should have been about rescuing individual institutions. That's not what a lender of last resort is about. Right? It's supposed to be supporting the market as a whole, uh, making sure there are bridges to cross, but we don't have to save any particular bridge as long as there are plenty. Uh, on the question of the transparency of these decisions, I mean, that's, that's an important political economy question. How do we hold the Fed accountable for decisions if we sort of can't examine the decision-making process, but I guess you need to uh, interview people who are in the room, uh, mm. and unlikely that they're going to tell secrets, but... Yeah, so I actually I kind of think it's worse than you say, Andy, in that it is, it's troubling that communications during this period often framed issues to avoid acknowledging the subsidy element of what they're that what they were doing, taking a macroeconomic rationale for microeconomic interventions, which, by the way, might mean you're doing it in an inefficient way, not only just un, uh, untransparent. My favorite example is why are those programs called Maiden Lane? Maiden Lane actually happens to be the street at the back door of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, so, which tells you that, <laughs> that lawyers have a sense of humor. My... <laughs> My standard joke is that if the protesters in New York knew what they were up against, uh, what they were about, they would have called the movement Occupy Maiden Lane, not Occupy Wall Street. <laughs> uh, but, but the other part of it is, is also uh, were decisions, at least within the board, there is a settled body of statutes, the Freedom of Information Act, to get documents. But to the extent that there wasn't sharing within the system, there are, there, are, uh, there are relevant documents at private co corporations, i.e. The, the Federal Reserve Banks, uh, that uh, are not given to historians. <clears throat> so, um, I think one important aspect to keep in mind is that uh, these institutions uh, were uh, given credit uh, under the 13-3 uh, abilities uh, in the context of a lack of resolution frameworks for major financial institutions. You know, one of the major achievements of the Dodd-Frank Act is to phase in a resolution framework for uh, the major banks in the U.S. And 
if that had existed at the time, presumably uh, some of the actions that had been taken might not have had to be taken because you would have said, oh, you send them into the resolution, OLA, and that's it. Um, and so I think that uh, the future looks brighter from that respect, right? Because resolution now is there for the major financial institutions. Um, so that's uh, number one. You know, number two, I think in terms of um, lending of last resort, I mean, as Larry points out, uh, broad-based facilities such as the PS PDCF, TSLF, TAF, etc. Uh, actually, TAF was not even under 13.3. TAF was a discount window of operation. But you know, all these other CPFFs, etc. These were all done under 13.3, and they would all still be possible. Um, and uh, you know, that reflected lending of last resort to non-bank financial institutions. I mean, in the U.S., half of the financial system, half of credit intermediation is outside of the banking system. And so in a, in a broad liquidity crisis, of course, you know, injecting liquidity only to the banks is, is not enough. You also have to inject liquidity in this whole shadow banking system. And that's exactly what these facilities were about. Now, of course, that had to be followed up by much stricter prudential standards. And I think this is where, where you could ask, well, the banks are certainly more strictly regulated. I mean, the dealers, the major dealers are all banks now. They're, so they're also subject to stress tests and Basel III, uh, Etc. But there are uh, many other non-bank financial institutions that aren't subject to prudential supervision, and there are limited microprudential tools to really address risks ex ante in that non-bank sector. And so this is, you know, related to your question, but I think it's a worry that we do have to think about. So you know, once crisis hit, because we have OLA, I think we're actually in a in a better place. Yeah, thank you, Carl. Right here. No, no, yeah, woman over here. Uh, yes, my name is uh, Anne Spihar uh, from the University of Alaska Southeast. So um, I can't believe I'm actually doing this, but um, in defense of the Fed, <laughs> uh, <laughs> forgive me. But see, my, the picture I have of what happened back then, 2007, 2008, is that we were basically faced with a um, balance sheet uh, recession, meaning that the assets collapsed. And, and, and to put that into more broad perspective, M3 type M4 money had actually collapsed. Um, and that meant that assets lost their values. And so our, our real issue at that point, and, and, I, and I should also mention that this was to everybody's surprise. I mean, most of this activity was taking place behind closed doors, over-the-counter over um, derivatives. And so everybody was shocked at the degree to which this M4, M3 type money had exploded. And, and so the real issue at the time was how do you plug that hole, if you will? How do you go about uh, correcting a money supply that's massively collapsed, um, that isn't in the form of M1, M2, for which we have all kinds of monetary policies to deal with, but no theory to support how to, how to restore M3, M4 type money, let alone even know the impact of, of mortgage-backed securities on the market. Um, and so I, I think the Fed was really flying blind in, in many ways. And, and, and in their defense, um, sure, it, it's, it certainly looks like 
they were favoring um, their own institutions. But the bottom line was is that they had to restore the value of those assets or we were going to lose our financial system, period. And, and on top of all this, this was global. This was not uh, banks just in the United States. These were foreign banks based in the United States. And then we were also dealing with a euro market, um, the, the euro dollar market. On top of all this, you know, running into problems with um, you know, uh, shortages of dollars, United States dollars in the market forcing them to get engaged in, in swaps. Okay, so I, I think I've probably painted the picture enough. But given that this was the situation that they faced, I, I, I certainly understand um, how they were flying. I mean, they really were blind and flying, trying to come up with, with ways to stop what was going on. So I think really the issue today is, is it's true now, you know, how they dealt with Lehman, there was probably some questionable behavior there and some favoritism, I don't know. I'm not the person to go into that, but, but the bottom line is, is that the question that we should really be asking today is the Fed has, with the current policies that we have now, the Fed is now a dealer. And it might even be argued that he is the mar they are the market um, because they're dealers. And how do we get out from under that? What kind of monetary policy do we come up with to try to get the Fed out of being the market, mm -hmm. the dealer, if you will, and um, without without favoritism and supporting Main Street as opposed to the Wall Street, have I? Yes, yeah, so um, I think one important thing to keep in mind in these uh, mortgage-backed securities purchases is that these are agency mortgages, so the Fed actually didn't take on credit risk, right? The, the Fed, as a matter of fact, unlike other central banks, is not allowed to take on any credit risk. It can only buy, purchase treasuries and agency-backed securities. The credit risk is uh, with the GSEs, which is backed by treasury, which is a, a different issue that is debatable. Uh, but the Fed itself actually has a very, very narrow ability to buy any, any assets. Now, I do want to point to one interesting study, but there's an academic at Columbia called Harry Mamaisky, and he did sort of like a very careful study using very conservative standard errors, asking whether QE also had an impact on risky assets. So, for example, on stock market valuations and on implied volatilities in derivatives markets. And what he finds is that, yes, there is a very statistically significant effect, of QE on risky asset prices. And when you go to talk to you know, uh, uh, practitioners, they often say that. It's not so much, I mean, of course, there's the impact that Vince was talking about, which is on the treasury term premium, right? And you know, estimates range between 60 or 50 and, mm. and 100 basis points of, of the impact on the treasury term premium. But there's also this impact on, on risky asset prices. And this is really about, you know, uh, counteracting the, the total collapse, right? I mean, there was a downward spiral that was going on, and it wasn't just the institutions that actually went bust that were under threat. There were, were much, you know, the, the, the institutions under threat were much more broadly, right? And so, so the attempt was to put, the, you know, to to get asset prices back up so that there wouldn't be even more widespread default. And so, I think it's quite interesting to just know that there was this impact on, on broader risky asset prices as well. I mean, in terms of how do you get out of this, I think the normalization is one thing. I mean, you know, the question is, do you want to sell assets or do you want to run them off? And I think they're the Fed, so like the side of, well, we're just going to run them off. And so it might take more time, but by selling, you might have quite an impact on long-term interest rates. And... Um, 
uh, on prepayment risk, right? I mean, the MBS, I mean, in some sense, the way I think about it is that by buying treasuries, you impact the term premium because the expected path, of course, is given by, by forward guidance. Whereas uh, by buying MBS, you're also impacting the, the price of risk of prepayment risk, right? The MBS, they don't have credit risk, but they do have prepayment risk. And you can basically impact the price, the market price of prepayment risk in that market. Um, and so, um, you know, and that does benefit homeowners ultimately because when they take out a mortgage, you know, embedded in the price somewhere, they have to pay lower, lower prepayment uh, risk uh, pricing, you know, to the extent that that's passed on from the financial institution. So, so I think that's the question is, do you run off sort of like slowly or do you actually sell securities? And, um, you know, they decided to run off slowly uh, and I think, you know, it seems defendable to me because I do think that there might be quite a bit of a market impact and that would have an impact on, on current economic activity. Well, the uh, red light is flashing, so um, we're going to take a break for lunch. I'd like to thank the panelists and um, also make a couple announcements. Um, the lunch is going to be on the second floor. You just go up the spiral staircase and uh, we'll return after the, uh, for the luncheon here for the address, so the luncheon address, uh, which will be given by uh, Phil Graham, who many of you know, and uh, Jeb Henserling will be introducing uh, Senator Graham. And uh, if you can return to the auditorium here by 1.30 promptly, because we have to get started right away, uh, I would appreciate it. Also, uh, I was asked to mention that uh, you'll have a chance to have further questions to the speakers uh, during the lunch or we have another break later on. So let them go upstairs to lunch without corralling them here. Okay, well, thanks very much. We'll see you uh, in a little bit. <laughs>